1 Samuel 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they have done from the day as I I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. Thanks, Nikki. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to see you all. If you're brand new, welcome to our church for the first time. Glad you guys are joining today. Uh, we are, as you just heard, uh, in a series in the books of First and Second Samuel. Most of you are aware of this, but if you're just joining, uh, we are still sort of uh, towards the beginning of this series, and we'll be in uh, this series for much of the school year. Um, and one of the reasons, actually, uh, we're so excited to do this uh, is because the New Testament draws so many lines between many of its principal characters and events, and Jesus Christ, who comes much later in the story in the New Testament. And we've seen many of these connections already in this series, but I was thinking especially about it this week because of the Advent series uh, approaching. So Thanksgiving's coming this week, of course, and Advent uh, beginning this uh, next Sunday, and with Christmas itself coming not too long after. Um, the, the New Testament says that David's hometown of Bethlehem is such a big deal and so important. Kind of a small detail that you might not think is that big of, big of a thing, where King David was going to be born. And then to point that to Jesus, it makes such a big deal out of, out of that, that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, uh, dis, the distant descendant of David, who, and the theology in that being, uh, who would also be 
born in a podunk town so that he could come for the outcast sinner and not, say, to flatter the big city saint or something like that. And so one of the many things we're going to see in the upcoming weeks here, um, I don't know if that'll fall actually right in line with Advent or not, probably not, but uh, it's not wrong or inappropriate to feel 1 Samuel is very Christmassy. It has that vibe to it. And then when the prophets start to speak a bit later in the story too, they pick up on this and say, there's something about small things and small cities and not the obvious places of the world and of scripture where God seems to work the most. And birthplaces of kings and birthplaces of future sons of God uh, themselves being Jesus Christ ultimately uh, is very, very important. So, uh, so again, one of the reasons why we're doing this series and one of the reasons why we're so excited is because a lot of our understanding of Christian theology is actually kind of like it starts to sprout up here in the Old Testament. Not in the biggest of ways, that's going to come later with Jesus, but they're connected. All these stories are connected. So our understanding of the former Uh, necessarily kind of informs our understanding and shaping of the latter. All right, so uh, to recap where we, I guess, have been a little bit, but especially to recap today's passage, uh, Samuel is a judge. He's a leader figure. He's a priestly figure at this point in Israel's history. And we're picking up today in chapter 8. This is a really interesting chapter of of Scripture, at least it's uh, for, for me in my past readings of this book and present as well. Uh, it's a very interesting um, story that ends not maybe how you think it would. Um, I've always liked how it takes a turn for kind of the sarcastic in the middle, or at least how it surprises us with um, maybe something we would not expect God to do in, uh, in Israel as well uh, before God's response. So as we just read, uh, Israel asks for a king because Samuel's too old, they say. It's kind of this little passing shot. You're too old. Uh, and his sons are too wicked, Uh, It also says, and yes, we're supposed to see the irony there because Israel, in the very act of asking for a king in this manner, is also sinning. So uh, it's one of those big ironies uh, that we've already seen actually in this book. But Israel demands a king nonetheless. This upsets Samuel. He brings it to God. Then God says, listen to them. Give them what they want, but warn them what's about to come if they continue down this path. And so Samuel says, guys, this king will tax the bleep out of you, he will steal your possessions, he'll work you harder, he'll take your land for himself, he'll steal your kids, he'll essentially be like your worst nightmare. And Israel's like, "Mm, yes, we still want him. You know, it's like, what is going on, right? And clearly they're not believing Samuel's warning in that, but they still ask anyway. And it's this big kind of left turn in the story that you don't Um, necessarily uh, expect. And especially, why doesn't God kind of speak up and kind of correct them in the moment? Why does he not kind of, um, you know, prevent them from this, but instead he gives them over to it? We'll talk about that uh, a little bit, a little bit later. So um, then in in what might be one of the biggest kind of hand-washing moments in all of scripture, Samuel's like, you know, all right guys, it's it's your funeral, Now, now go home. All right, so I want to work through this passage today kind of by way of three questions. So if you like to look ahead, it's all in your sermon insert inside your worship folder. Uh, but let's start with the most, maybe the most obvious or one that just needs to be addressed at least. Uh, and that is, um, why was it wrong for Israel to want a king? So if you know your Deuteronomy, uh, you might remember that God says in Deuteronomy 17:15, when you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. So wanting a king isn't forbidden, 
The problem is, it's a king they are choosing on their own terms. It's a, it, the problem is that because of that, it presents as a lack of trust in God and kind of a type of working up of a king on their own strength rather than receiving a king from him. Um, so it's really important to see. A lot of people, even commentators sometimes miss this and say, uh, the problem was that they were asking for a king like the other nations had. And so it's sort of, we want to be like the other nations. But actually, that's not what it says. Deuteronomy 17, uh, God is saying through Moses there that uh, when you say that we want a king like all the other nations have, so even saying it that way is not necessarily the biggest problem. The problem is they're doing it on their own terms and in their own timing. They're not receiving from God on his terms and on his timing. And this is all further evidence for what we've been saying for about three weeks or so now, especially last week, that this is a form of idolatry. It's a form of trusting in the self. It's a form of de- deifying other things right alongside the one true God uh, in a form of forsaking him in almost an adulterous way. Um, and maybe even just simply of saying, if I just have this one extra thing, then I'll be enough. If I, if I accomplish this one extra feat or climb this one extra rung in the ladder or if I had this one extra thing in my life, then I will be enough. I'll be sufficient. Life will be okay. Um, and it's, that, it's those types of thoughts. It's those types of kind of yearnings of the heart that are shaping the, the, the nation's uh, demanding of a God right now uh, so, so that, that that king might represent them and kind of be them uh, but a lot of it just kind of, again, stems from this self-sufficiency um, rather than having a God-alone-sufficiency God type spirituality. All right, so this begins a major shift in the Samuel narratives. If you are people that like to kind of, um, you know, outline the books as you go or something or even write those in your Bibles, uh, you would put a mark right before this chapter or I guess right after it. Either way, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, but a major shift in, in the narratives, not simply into the era of the kings from, you know, Israel's been through a lot already at this point in the Old Testament. This is a shift now into the era of, of the kings, and so that is happening. But not just that. It's, it's also into what will become a major, multi-chapter, epic story about the clash between Saul, who will become the people's choice, we'll meet him more next week, and David, who will be the the king that God chooses and who will more fully typify Jesus Christ along the way. So it's not for today to delve too deep into all of that. Much of the rest of the series will have ample time to do so, uh, but it's important to see that it begins here. Out of this sinful, God-rejecting, self-promoting desire to work up a king through Samuel rather than to receive a king from God, which in case it wasn't already clear, should sound a lot to us like trying to save ourselves versus trusting in God to save us. That's the clash of ideologies that runs all the way throughout the Bible. The clash of ways of thinking about God and how to relate to him. The clash of the covenants. The clash of law and grace or self and uh, God that, that fights each other, bounces off each other, interacts with each other, and tells one story still through it, whether, again, by way of comparison or contrast, points ahead to the one who would resolve this tension and fulfill all of these types of, of themes.
All right, so then the question becomes, why was it wrong for them, or if it was wrong for them to want a king, uh, at least in this manner, why did God grant it to them? Why, did, why was God okay with this? And the best way, I think, to start to answer this question is to see that this is actually a pattern for God, uh, not, a, not a one-off. Uh, it actually says, um, uh, like it says in Romans 1, uh, 24, God gave them over to their desires for sins. It's kind of more of a, a broad brush idea here in a little bit different context, but the language is really important there. Uh, it says about fallen humanity at large that God sometimes gives them over uh, to their sins. Uh, it, it's, so it's a form of judgment, but also a form of storytelling. Um, I think if, uh, if this phrase helps you, it also it's like slow-bake point-making. I don't know if I'm the first person ever to coin that or not. It doesn't matter. Uh, but slow-bake point-making. So, like, God make, makes points in a very meticulous, slow-bake kind of way sometimes. And that's partly what um, this, uh, this is all about when God is giving people over uh, to things, not just judgment. So it helps to answer the question then from that perspective to see this is not just a one-off time where God is saying, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let you kind of delve more into your sin. I'll let you have what you want, basically. Uh, actually, it reminded me uh, a few places here I have today uh, of the, there's more than this, but the big ones probably are this. Um, reminded me when Israel was in the desert and uh, earlier in the story and God was graciously giving them bread from heaven every day to eat. Uh, it's like this, this miracle where every day they wake up and from the dew would be this wonderful bread that, that they could eat and cook with. There's at one point, I forget exactly where, but it says all the different things they do with the bread. Uh, some people were like cooking it a certain way and making different kinds of like wafers out of it. Others were kind of grinding it. Uh, so it was uh, much more diverse actually than you think, but it was just one singular bread in the desert that God was giving Israel miraculously every day to eat. It was called manna. Manna means what is it, actually, which is kind of interesting. But, um, but that's what they had. And so, th- but this one point in the story, Israel just gets sick of it. Uh, it's, it they, they want something different. They want, a, they want more of a diverse kind of you know, palate or plate. And so they demand quail. They, they demand meat. They basically say, we want meat, not this same bread from God every day. We want uh, we want something else. And so they grumbled and complained against God's provision and asked God for, for more. And so then in that story, God says, okay. He kind of lets them have it. Even though it was wrong for them to ask, it was sin to reject uh, God's chosen form of provision. Uh, later in the story, Jesus would liken himself to that bread, actually, too. So lots of crossover here between is Jesus enough for us or do we want something else? But that's for another sermon. But so the point here is just to say um, that this is another place where God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. But if you know the story, it's too much quail. It brings disease, it brings plague, and it brings death. Um, and, and, or you could kind of look elsewhere earlier in the story, too, where Adam and Eve, who were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, sunk their teeth into its fruit anyway. Uh, believing the satanic lie that they too can be strong enough to be good on their own and to be like God. And so God let them have it. And later in the story, he gives them 613 laws to keep, uh, partially from a place of, hey, if you guys want laws to keep, here you go. 
Uh, And then later when Moses says that the law is a witness against them, how they're not able to keep it, and how Joshua as well, Moses' successor, says to Israel in chapter 24, you are witnesses against yourselves that you said you could serve the Lord. After the people said, we can do this, we can keep his laws. Uh, We're sufficient to do this. So uh, I guess another instance in where God is letting people have what they want to show that it's not ultimately what they should have wanted and that he's better. And so we can't determine if something's good or at least ultimate simply because God gave it. Was the quail good? Was this first king Israel was going to receive good? Was the law good? It's a complicated answer. You could say they all served a good purpose, in the story, that quail and kings are technically morally neutral things. They're not bad. And in regards to the law, it was good and holy and perfect. But all of those things also brought death and curse. And they were never meant to last. Nor were they something that people ultimately needed. I was talking to uh, Peter Carlson this week about uh, Black Mirror. You guys seen Black Mirror on Netflix? It's kind of a Twilight zone show, but modernized to kind of like be about uh, AI and tech and stuff and how like it brings pro- more problems into our life than, than blessings. Um, it's very rated R in some of them too, so just be, be warned if you delve into it, but super good. Um, but Peter was just sharing how, with me how a lot of the shows that he liked, and I would agree, um, have this thread of when getting what you want becomes a curse. Like what happens when you, get, when you get what you actually want becomes a curse to you when you think it's going to be a blessing. There's one show called Be Right Back, uh, the story of a young woman whose boyfriend's killed in a car crash, and she gets this new AI technology, which is funny. I think I watched this maybe like, what's this, four or five years ago? This episode maybe came out, and now like AI is just like prevalent, so now it's even creepier. Uh, but this new, AI t- this new AI tech that lets her interact with him, her dead boyfriend, and it just ends up ruining her life. She just thinks, oh, this is going to be the best. It's going to help me. It's going to help me um, process this and get through it and, and basically have, like, my boyfriend back. And it just, as you might, you know, Mike, it just destroys her. Um, and so, again, this, this theme in that show, too, like we see here in Scripture, this theme of we think things are going to help us, and we ask for them. We even ask God for them. And they just curse us. Uh, if that isn't the story of the law in the Bible, I don't know what is. Uh, that, that, that is through and through, time and time again. You can broad brush it, you can microscope it, uh, but time and time again, this is the thing uh, that plagues Israel. It's this uh, desire to be good on their own apart from God, a desire for the quail and the kings, but also the self-sufficiency of the law relating to God based on moral effort and not on just receiving from him. So why does God give people over to things like this? Why in this instance in 1 Samuel 8 does he just allow them to have this king that is going to be a bad thing for them? God is not a killjoy or a trickster, but God is the great storyteller. And God is serious about helping us to see how much our reaching for good apart from him is fruitless and how trusting in things apart from him leads to death. Now, with that said, I think we need to be careful about applying this passage on too much of like a micro or personal scale because, 
you know, if, you, if we do that, we're just going to overthink everything we're doing. And we're going to wonder if God is, you know, is he giving me over to this thing, uh, you know, that, that I've wanted uh, or not? Am I asking for it on a perfectly pure level? Am I worshiping it even a little bit in some way? We would just get destroyed by this way of thinking, uh, not liberated and, and freed up. Uh, it's, it's not meant to be applied on that particular of a level. It's just simply not healthy, nor the lesson here. The greater point is about a movement from self to God, or strength to weakness, or law to grace. Uh, And and if that type of movement, whether we just read about it in the Bible or experience this on some level in our lives, that type of movement, if that helps us run to the arms of our Savior all the more and helps us to see him as the better thing, then the scenic route that we all take to some degree on our spiritual journeys is a good thing in the end. And God knows that. This is, again, partly why, back to circle back to the question, this is partly why he's slow-bake making a point like this, is when you get to the end then, the thing that's better shines all the brighter. Uh, in fact, I'd put it this way. Uh, Jesus was always meant to come in after our failed attempts at saving ourselves. And when he comes, he shines all the brighter. And when he comes, he comes with open arms. Not a, I told you so, snark to him, but simply joy. An open arm embrace and an elation that we who were once lost are now found. That, again, is another way of just broad brush storying the Bible, is that Jesus always comes in after our failed attempts. Uh, this is the story of individuals, nations, and all of humanity for all of history, and us in this very room today, that Jesus has come into our life after our failed attempts at being our own kings and queens and saving ourselves. Now, the final question then would be um, to ask, how is this passage gospel-facing? How is it New Testament-facing? Uh, how is it a small puzzle piece uh, in the greater mosaic, um, like we're always doing in the, and always should do, actually, not just in sermons, but as you guys read these stories as well, always asking, how are these things not happening on an island, but part of a greater word, capital W word, that God is uh, echoing uh, all the way throughout Scripture and in every single story and person and object and event on some level? So here I just put it, uh, phrased it, how does Jesus serve as the ultimate fulfillment? So how is it completed somehow in him? Or a better version of this passage? Because we are talking about kings. And when you talk about kings, you have to talk about the king of kings, ultimately. Because all kings exist to either contrast with him or typify him or compare with him. And so having two buckets when you read about the kings, not just in these books, but in the book of First and Second Kings as well, and Chronicles and after that, uh, you always have to have those two buckets. How is Jesus better than this king? Or as is in the case of someone like David especially, or maybe Josiah or Hezekiah, how are they representing Jesus, those kings in the light of Judah, which is genealogically where Jesus would, would be from? All right, so a little bit of an aside there, but always keep that in mind. But for today, so how is Jesus serving as the ultimate um, goal of 1 Samuel 8? So as God says in, in um, today's passage to Samuel It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Which is kind of interesting because Samuel's probably thinking, 
I've led you guys, you know, not perfectly, but pretty faithfully here for so long. Now you're just saying, you're too old, you know, and we want someone else. And so Samuel may have been, may have been taking that a little bit personally. Uh, so God is just saying, there's not, they're not really rejecting you. Through you, your, their rejection of you, they're ultimately rejecting me as their ultimate, their ultimate leader. Um, but as God, this is actually really important, though, to see this, that God is highlighting this and making this very clear. They have rejected me in asking for a king. And um, here's where I think our mind should go when we hear that motif. This is not the last time in Scripture this kind of kingly rejection will happen, right? This narrative is remarkably similar to when Jesus was put on trial and the people who wanted him dead, remember who they declared their king was? They declared their king was Caesar, not Jesus. And they, then after that, they chose Barabbas to be released from prison, a known criminal, and an insurrectionist, instead of Jesus. And Pilate, the Roman governor in that story, who's kind of at wit's end, because he's like, there's nothing, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He's trying to do everything he can to set him free. Uh, and who sounds a lot like Samuel, actually, uh, in today's passage. There's a lot of Pilate-Samuel similarity here. But Pilate, who's trying to set Jesus free because he knows he's not guilty, ends up washing his hands in front of them and saying, fine, if this is what you guys want, but it's your responsibility, not mine. Sound familiar? Actually, in Matthew 27, Pilate says, it's in your hands. Which, again, it's this stark contrast between, is your salvation in your hands or is it in God's? What happens when we put it in our hands? Our doings, our obedience, our strivings, our ascension. Well, all hell breaks loose. But when it's in God's hands, uh, everything comes to fruition in the best way possible. Uh, it, it couldn't be uh, more either or, uh, more um, dark light, more failure success of, of a contrast. So the reason this is important to see is it's another answer to the question of why God would give Israel over to their misplaced desire for a king. Uh, the answer is because God's a good storyteller and because Jesus would come later to replay this story out through his own arrest and trial and eventual crucifixion. He would use their Caesar-embracing sin, you could say. He would um, use their self-inflating pride to bring about a great good. He would ultimately use their rejection to die for their rejection. He would give them over to their sinful desires, but it was really him giving himself over to be crucified so they wouldn't be crushed by his crucifixion, but rather saved by it. This is the genius of God uh, in, in all of this. So this also means that 1 Samuel 8 is not teaching us that you're saved by perfectly obeying the moral principle of always with perfectly pure motives, ask God for the perfectly right things or you'll be damned. You are saved in spite of your inability to do that and from your inability to always do that and from the fact that we've already played the role of Israel here in our hearts. That's the point. 
The problem with making moral lessons out of the Old Testament is actually myriad, but one of them is moral lessons put stories like this out in front of us and just say, okay, as you guys go home, out in front of your life in the future, try not to do what Israel's doing here in your heart. But that's not what this is about. This is not a moral lesson in front. It's a story behind. You and I have already done this. So morality is no help for you. You could hit a home run perfectly from this day forward in your life, but you still sinned against a holy God as I have. And we've all wanted to self-deify. We've all tried to work ourselves toward him based on something we've done. We've all worshipped something else besides him as our true king. And it's a past tense. Have, it's a mirror, in other words, not um, a, 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 a TED talk for your future. Those are different things, right? This is a mirror. Uh, it's meant to be seen as that. And so, again, uh, we're not saved by drawing a moral lesson out of this and trying hard to keep it. We, we're saved by a Jesus walking right smack dab into the middle of this kind of God-rejecting narrative, wearing it around his neck and dying for us in love. Do you see how, how important that is to see the sins of the Old Testament, how Jesus reenacts them and, and wears them and lives them out? He didn't shout from the cross, uh, choose a better king or choose me or choose a better path, or be more obedient. Like he's dying for our disobedience and dying for how we've taken the wrong, the wrong path. Uh, the crucifixion then becomes this great gospel qualifier, grace-filled qualifier uh, to our otherwise wayward minds that would attempt to make this into um, a story for effort rather than a story to receive. And when we do that, ironically, we actually do go back into the sin of Israel and try to work up a king on our own rather than hearing the mantra play over and over again. That's not what he wants. He wants to be received, not worked for. This is precisely their sin. He wants to be received by grace, not worked for and impressed. Uh, like we just read last week from Acts 7 when Stephen, one of the early Christians who was Jewish as well, uh, says... That no one can, actually, actually, Paul says it in Acts 17, actually, when he preaches to the Athenians. He says, God cannot be served by human hands as if he needed anything. And so these desires for law and for kings uh, and for quail, uh, at the heart of those desires is a disbelief in that idea that God actually can be served uh, as if he did need something from us. And God is constantly rejecting that narrative. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of that, how he came to embody the rejection of that narrative by saying, you don't have to. I love you. Receive from me. And the genius, again, of God being using our rejection to save us from our rejection is just almost mind-blowing. Like Highland was praying uh, to close worship earlier, just mind-blowing how his genius uh, would, would present this way in, in Scripture. Then from there, um, from the, that middle part where Samuel's saying, guys, if you ask for a king, this is what he's going to do. Um, in that middle section, we see a strong contrast then between what is being predicted about the people's king in 1 Samuel 8 and 
God's king, who will first be David, but ultimately Jesus in his line. Um, God says that this self-appointed, self-glorifying king will take and take and take. Actually, pause there for a second. Um, The word take is repeated six times, at least, in that section. This is a king of taking, robbing, pulling from you and from me, from us. And so he will claim things as his rights, but Jesus will be different. Jesus doesn't take. He gives and gives and gives and does not claim things as his rights, even though he could. He's God. Instead, the Bible says he did not count equality with God something to be claimed as his rights or grasped. And so in Samuel's prophecy, Jesus then becomes the enslaved one. He becomes the son thrown out to the front of the battle to die for others rather than demanding such things from us. And when he does take, he takes from himself and gives to us. And so if he takes anything from us at all, it's simply taking our sins away, as Romans 11 uh, talks about. Covenantally, he takes our sins away. All right, so... um, Per 1 Samuel 8, I think what you see is the two big cries of the human heart. I mean, there's tons, right? But there's two big cries of the human heart in this passage. The first is, I want a king. But we need to come to terms with how we've all wanted this in the wrong way. That, again, we've wanted to be king and that a life of religion, of more of us, is not the answer. It always makes the problem worse. Instead, we need a king from God alone. We need him alone who will love us to the uttermost so we can step back in the shadows and let him shine. The second cry, if you saw at the bottom of the passage, is I want relief. On verse 18, um, it says the people will cry out from the king they asked for. It's an interesting word, actually, relief, um, but an important one when it comes to the gospel. Because again, what Saul, this, the people's king, Saul, this false king, will eventually embody, um, tells us re- religious systems full of rules don't bring relief. Instead, they say, work harder, do more, fight for me, get out in front. They, they take from us. Uh, so again, Saul will represent this uh, later in the story, as early as next week, but we'll, we'll see this more and more. Um, but a king from God who comes to give of himself, not take, but give that we might receive from him all our days. That's not religion. That's salvation from the hand of God itself that's willing to fight for us, not ask us to fight for him, but fight for us. To become mocked and spit on, to become the unchosen son, the ultimate rejected Samuel here, you could say as well, um, that we might be spared from our high treason, which is actually what sin really is, ultimately. It's high treason, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And in its wake, Jesus continues to give and give and give from us, not asking anything in return, except that we receive him and live freely out of his love. And that is actual relief. If your gospel moves you from um, Jesus gives to us when we're converted but now he's actually taking from us, that's a false gospel. Like, it's, it's not what the Bible's teaching. He's always giving, always pouring out and giving of himself. And 
He doesn't change from a God who can't be served into a God who can be served. He never changes, the Bible says. So the question for us is, how do we always combat this propensity to make God into a God who's taking and demanding from us, or maybe we demand of ourselves because we think that's what he's expecting, Um, but always live freely out of the fact that he's the giver, the ultimate and the most generous being in the universe is the God of the Bible. Um, That's actual relief, saved from our sins and death through the person and work of Jesus as a gift, not as something something to earn uh, or kind of recreate in our lives to make God happy. Or you could say it this way, relief is not sourced from our works, it's only sourced from, from the gospel. And so, so final word here, I'll just say, um, you know, again, with number two, I think we say we want relief, but we look for it in the wrong place. And so the Bible, the, the gospel is saying, so Jesus comes to find us in all the wrong places that we look for truth and wholeness and salvation. The, all the wrong places that we live our lives in, and he doesn't wait for us to, to find him. Uh, this is the, the far-reaching um, but still intentional and beautiful hope of 1 Samuel 8 is that Jesus is right around the corner and even right here in uh, this, this passage calling out to us, saying, I love you. I fought your battles. I'm always at the front. I'm being enslaved for you, carried to the cross, the hill of the cross for you, shedding my blood for you, uh, giving the bread of my body for you, it's sufficient. Um, like the manna for Israel, it's, it's enough, it's perfect, it's beautiful. Um, receive from me and you'll be saved. No matter what you've done or are doing or will do, it doesn't matter. Um, my grace trumps all sin uh, now and for all time. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this story uh, in the middle of this book, in the middle of the Old Testament, uh, where again, it's a we, we see you in, in dark places. We, we see you in dark corners and places where maybe we wouldn't expect to find you. Uh, but thank you for pulling the veil up, helping us to see uh, and to hear uh, and, and to receive from you. Uh, to see our sin, but to see you as the solution, not us. Uh, to see um, how you give your people over to things uh, f- for a time to show that you're the better way. Um, and we've all striven We've all worked, we've all sweat um, in ways that uh, hasn't worked and solved our problems. And, but you're there to say, it's okay. I'm not saving you on the basis of how much you work for me. Uh, I'm saving you on the basis of my work, my work for you. And so, God, give us renewal and refreshment in that today, wherever we are. Those who are, not here, who are here and not Christians yet, um, help them to believe and to trust in you and, and to be okay coming messy to the cross. For the rest of us who are already Christians, God, grow us in that most holy faith that Christians have grown in throughout history. Mature us in that. Grow us in that. Make us happy in, in that grace today as we sing this final song too. In Christ, we pray. Amen.